Derek Taylor is the one who brought you into the Beatle world. Would you explain how you, how you wound up at Apple? Yeah, um, I was, I, I grew up in Tucson and um, I had to get out of town. You know, it was the late mid 60s and it was boring. So I moved to LA and I accidentally got a job at a record company there. Not a very good record company, it was Dart Records with Liberace and Lawrence Welk. But um, fortunately, that was my entree into the music business, totally by accident. And um, I met a promotion man from A&M Records who said, I want, who called me up one night and said, I want you to meet me at a restaurant because I want you to meet a man called Derek Taylor. He works for the Beatles. And I thought, no way. Nobody works for the Beatles. The Beatles are kind of like these fantasy people up here. And so I said no. And he kept telling me, no, 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 you've got to come. So finally I decided, okay, it's better than sitting at home by myself. So I went to the La Brea Inn in, Tucson, or in Los Angeles and I met Derek Taylor, who was one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. In what way? Um, a great sense of humor. He was a very distinguished man, a gentleman. Um, he looked a lot like Errol Flynn to me, very debonair. He was, um, he just had a, a way with words that I've never met anyone quite like that before or before or since then. And he didn't flaunt his relationship with the Beatles. He would say very casually, well, I got a letter from George. And that was it, you know? And he was just very down to earth. Uh, everyone loved him. Anyone who's ever met him will tell you that he was just pretty unique. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Seven, this is roll 29, 29. 3, 2, 1. Don't operate under these conditions, but you know, we're coming out. It's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone over so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. And we're back for season five. Yes, it has been a long break, hasn't it? But I hope you're all set to dive right into January 8th, 1969. Before we start, here is a quick podcast recommendation. The Thing About Pam. The podcast that inspired Renee Zellweger to produce her own six-part drama on the same subject and with the same title. No spoilers, just an incredible true crime story. January 7th, as you may recall, was a day of highs and lows. 
Paul created Get Back Out of Thin Air in the Morning, and they knocked Maxwell's Silver Hammer into shape with an anvil in the afternoon. But on the downside, the band openly discussed breaking up, and John's lack of confidence in his own work led to a miserable experience for all involved as the day drew to a close. Here, as usual, is a brief summary of episode 36. John, goaded by Paul to take control of the session, breaks into a rendition of Chuck Berry's rock and roll music. The rest of the Beatles join in. This has more energy than anything else John has attempted today. Yoko appears to have enjoyed the performance, and John comments on it. Inspired, John kicks off the riff to Little Richard's Lucille, and the band fall in behind. This time, Paul takes the lead. Glyn John seems to be recording these performances, and you can hear him altering the levels. George then steers the band back into rehearsing across the universe. Paul feels his way around a bass and harmony line, only partly successfully. The rehearsal is hesitant, almost breaking down at one point. Once again, dipping into his bag of oldies, John leads the band into a rendition of Carl Perkins' song, Gone, Gone, Gone. Clearly disenchanted with Across the Universe, John offers Dig a Pony for consideration. But as he attempts to teach them the song, he quickly becomes disheartened, asking if anyone has a fast one. Paul suggests one after 909. Their performance has less energy than the version that they spontaneously broke into on the third, and John still has trouble understanding what he should be playing during the solo. After this performance, John attempts a slower, bluesier version of the song, reminiscent of the 1963 recording. George would like to rehearse the song one more time. Paul doesn't think they should over-rehearse the song, and lets out a mock, anguished cry. The band play a musical crescendo under his moanings, and John launches into a brief performance of Ray Charles's What Do I Say, followed quickly by the requested One After 909. Immediately after this, John is distracted again by starting a riff that turns into a jam with the band accompanying him. As this draws to a conclusion, Paul sings the hook to Don't Let Me Down and John is amazed by his apparent telepathy. He then questions George about the suitability of wah-wah pedal on every song. They attempt to run through of Don't Let Me Down minus George's guitar part, which he seems to have forgotten since yesterday. But John and Paul have also forgotten the solution that they arrived at for the troublesome middle section, and John forgets the third verse again. Despite this, Paul declares himself satisfied with the progress. After a brief bit of work between Paul and Ringo tightening up the bass line, they begin another run-through. As this concludes, John notices a similarity between his song and an early Beatles cover of the Donnay's song, Devil in Her Heart, and attempts to play it, but he only half remembers it. Paul and Glyn then discuss the middle section of Don't Let Me Down. Glyn is of the opinion that this part is too heavy. They suggest a less heavy drum part for Ringo. As they discuss this, the acetate recording of the unreleased Across the Universe begins playing, and they all take a break to listen to it. George is a fan of this recording, though not so much the sound effects. After John plays a tuneless version of Chuck Berry's School Day, Paul suggests they run through She Came In Through The Bathroom Window, and then go home. They do a few run-throughs, but the day's audio ends abruptly as the last available tape runs out.
And so we arrive at January 8th, 1969. The British charts for this week, compiled by record retailer, showed The Scaffold at number one with Lily the Pink, temporarily ousting Marmalade's Obla Di Obla Da from the top spot, before it rallied and made a return for the following two weeks. The Foundation's Build Me Up Buttercup sat at number two, Fleetwood Max Albatross at number four, and I'm the Urban Spaceman by the Bonzo Dog Band at number five. So out of the top five singles in this week, three had a Beatles connection. The band's stock was still very high, and yet members of the band openly discussed dissolving their partnership yesterday. But once again, they assemble for cameras at Twickenham Film Studios. The weather is cold enough for coats. George arrives in his black Mongolian lamb fur coat, Paul in his camel-coloured overcoat with burgundy window pane pattern, John, of course, in his tabby brown lady's fur coat, and Ringo in a blue double-breasted pea coat with velvet lapels. The news, courtesy of Glyn Johns' Daily Mirror, on the front page declaring itself Newspaper of the Year. Navigator jumps, then pilot saves the plane. Months' delay to QE2 will cost two more cruises. Budgie with gout is told to cut out the boozing. Cray's bodyguard is jailed for hiding Axeman Mitchell. It's worth noting how 1969 newspapers didn't print the same story over several days as they do now. No mention at all of Britain's worst aviation disaster of only three days ago in these pages. But let's dig a little deeper into the story of Frank Mitchell, known as the Mad Axeman an associate of the Cray twins and often left out of dramatic accounts and documentaries on the notorious East End gangsters. Frank Mitchell was an imposing figure, possessing such great physical strength that he would demonstrate with party tricks like lifting two full-grown men, one in each hand, or even lifting a grand piano off the floor. Mentally, he was said to have the mind of a 13-year-old child, and this was accompanied by a short temper. A not particularly successful criminal specialising in shop-breaking and larceny, he served a number of prison terms from the age of 17, all characterised by violence towards the guards and fellow inmates. He was one of the ringleaders of a riot at Rochester Borstal, slashed a guard across the face and was charged with attempted murder for attacking another inmate. Declared mentally defective in the terminology of the day, he was sent to Rampton Psychiatric Hospital in 1955, where two years later, he and another inmate escaped, attacking a member of the public with an iron bar. When he was inevitably recaptured, he held the police at bay for a while at least, with two meat cleavers, and was sent to Broadmoor Hospital. But he escaped again and held a married couple hostage with an axe. It was this incident that led to him being nicknamed the Mad Axeman. Sentenced to life imprisonment for robbery with violence in 1958, after his transfer to Dartmoor Prison in 1962, Mitchell appeared to turn over a new leaf. He kept budgery guards and was considered sufficiently low risk that he was allowed to work outside prison walls in what was known as the Honour Party. The governor of the prison was so pleased with his progress that he promised Mitchell a release date if he kept out of trouble. Ronnie Cray had other ideas. He had known Mitchell since they'd been in Wandsworth Prison together. He was keen to break Mitchell out of Dartmoor, partly to enhance the Cray twins standing in the underworld. Reggie Cray passed on details of the plan to Mitchell while posing in disguise as a visitor. The escape was a simple matter for the trusted Mitchell to ask a guard for permission to feed some Dartmoor ponies on the moors, which he had done many times before 
with permission granted, Mitchell merely walked over to a quiet road and got into a getaway car. This was the 12th of December 1966. The escape was a national embarrassment and was debated in the House of Commons. A large-scale manhunt of 200 policemen and 100 Royal Marines and an RAF helicopter could not locate the man X-Men. To add to the embarrassment, Mitchell, with the aid of Cray associate Mad Teddy Smith, wrote to the national press asking for his release date to now be granted. All was not well between Mitchell and the Cray twins. Mitchell was freakishly strong and so short-tempered he was difficult to control. When Home Secretary Roy Jenkins refused to review Mitchell's status until he was back in custody, the Crays advised him to give himself up. Mitchell naturally did not want to go back to prison. Hidden away in a flat in Barking, East London, he could not go outside for fear of being recognised. He became agitated and began making threats against the Crays. This led the twins to conclude that releasing him or returning him to prison could only have dire consequences for them as they'd be implicated in his escape. For many years, it was not known what happened to Frank Mitchell. He simply disappeared, though rumours abounded that he'd been murdered by the twins. Albert Donoghue, a Cray associate, gave an account of what happened to Mitchell on the 24th of December 1966, a mere 12 days after he'd walked away from Dartmoor unhindered. Mitchell was taken to a van outside his flat under the premise of being driven to a safe house in the country, where Ron Cray, who hadn't visited Mitchell at all, would be waiting for him. They loaded the axeman into the back of the van, which was already occupied by several men. As soon as the doors to the van shut, the men opened fire. Donoghue counted 12 shots. The body, wrapped in chicken wire, was reportedly dumped in the English Channel. Ron Cray vehemently denied that Donoghue's account was correct and stated that Mitchell was smuggled out of Britain and so far as he knew, was still alive. But Mitchell was never found either dead or alive, so neither statement can be proved. The Daily Mirror headline refers to the subsequent trial in which Albert Donoghue turns crown witness against Ron Reg and Charlie Cray and associate Freddie Foreman. All were acquitted of Mitchell's murder due to Donoghue's unreliability as a witness. For his trouble, Donoghue, along with another Cray firm member, John Dixon, received 18 months and 9 months sentences respectively for harbouring Mitchell after his escape. So that was the news this chilly January morning. Let's join two Beatles, George and Ringo, as the Nagra tape is turned on. You'll note I've not discussed last night's television, but that's because George, Ringo and Michael are about to do just that. On the copy of the Nagra tapes that I have, the quality of sound on this first roll is quite poor. I've tried to enhance it, but it's a more difficult listen than usual. This first bit of audio is included in the Let It Be film. I don't know. Oh, that's not it. That's a fun joke. I mean mine, it's called. Yeah. Should I sing it to you? I, I don't, I don't, I don't care if you don't want it on your show. I don't give a fuck. Go in the musical. <laughs> So heavy walls. <laughs> George premieres his new composition for Ringo. He comments, if nobody likes it, it'll go in his musical. 
He's playing John's Epiphone Casino, which has heavier strings, and he prefers this for strumming as he did on Friday. Tape cuts. It's often stated that George was writing a musical around this time with Apple press officer Derek Taylor. Whether this was a serious project or whether it was one of the many ideas that George was contemplating at the time is not known. What we do know is that Derek was one of George's closest confidants and supporters. George once stated, Derek had more faith in me than I did. He was always telling me I could make it on my own if I wanted to. I always wanted to do something on my own, but it was easier said than done. Did you see what uh, go home, go to bed, fuck wife, watch TV? Yes, I read it. Did What's you that? see the TV last night? Yeah. Didn't you go on? Ask John for if he'd be so kind present. as to give you a copy of his 1969 diary. It's really too much. It's just, you see it? No, no. It's just his diary, but it's all filled in for the year. Mm. Already. It's too much in its start. Uh, got up, went out, came home, went to bed. <laughs> got up, went to work, came home, watched telly, went to bed. Got up, went watched out. Went to, <laughs> and then like Saturday night is, got up late, went out, came in, fucked wife, went to bed. <laughs> and it's just that. It's until it get... gets around to like, October. Sometime, you know, like June, July or August. Mm. Says, went to Mallorca and it's blank for two weeks and yeah, then it yeah. just came home. <laughs> George referring to John's 1969 diary, which we discussed in episode two. They all seem to appreciate John's inventive wit. Oh, but it was the TV, you see. I just thought I'd watch the TV. Did you watch the and, uh, BBC too? Yeah, there was that science fiction thing, but then suddenly it turned into all that crap about medals and things. Yeah, that Did was you see that? that? Yeah. So yeah. that was on, and um, that's what gave me the idea, because suddenly it was the bit where they were all coming into the ball, I think it was Austria, and they yeah. all had their medals. No, and, I didn't watch that. And there was some music was just playing, music like a 3-4 thing. Mm. And what, some things like that happen where, so, you know, you just hear something and it, in, it registers in your head as something else. Mm. And so I just had that in there, just the waltz thing, and it was fitting I me mind. There was no words to it. I was just... It's nice. But it's always, you know, to... Stalls. <laughs> and it's so easy. And, you know... It's good. Yeah, it's like one of those... You know, we, they're all swaying. George talking about his last night's TV viewing, Out of the Unknown, followed by a show called Europa. We don't really know what all the Beatles watched on TV last night, but back in 1969, where there were only three channels, it was much more likely that everyone would have a shared experience, and as a consequence, water cooler moments like this would often happen. Both George and Ringo have watched the science fiction anthology series Out of the Unknown. This show ran from 1965 to 1971 and featured adaptations of stories by famous authors such as Isaac Asimov, J.G. Ballard, Frederick Pohl and John Wyndham. Last night's episode, Immortality Inc. was the first of season three and was an adaptation of a 1958 novel by Robert Sheckley. George gives you the plot in this discussion. 
Sadly, as with many classic TV shows aired by the BBC in the 60s, this and many other episodes were wiped after their initial broadcasts in order to save money on videotape. Although no one mentions BBC One's lineup for last night, there are a couple of programmes that may have caught the channel hopping Beatles' eye. Peter Sellers, with whom Ringo is about to film Magic Christian, is starring in Two Way Stretch, a comedy about a gang of crooks planning a robbery from inside a prison. The Dick Emery Show is also on at 9.55. Emery had supplied the voice of Jeremy in the Yellow Submarine movie. It does look like George and Ringo's choice of viewing was the ITV documentary The Killing of Eagles, followed by Out of the Unknown, then Europa, the news summary and weather, and then late night lineup. Europa, subtitled, the titled, and the unentitled, was a program about British pomp and circumstance when viewed through European eyes. Featuring a special report from French television on the investiture this summer of the Prince of Wales. But it's the incidental music in this show that captures George's imagination. Like that as well. <laughs> Ringo likes George's falsetto voice. He also used this last year on Long Long Long. Michael calls it a castrato. It's possible these words had some resonance with George. His other contribution to the Let It Be film, For You Blue, is also sang in a falsetto. And it's arguable that something on Abbey Road is raised from its original key to facilitate George's more pleasing upper register. Lovely. lovely, says Michael. I think there's possibly a Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch inspiration for that Spanish influence section. Ringo is singing along with the hook. Tape cuts again. George is using Paul's song altogether now as an example of the cliched bridge that he's trying to avoid. Talking to Michael, he then quotes Dylan's Times They Are Changing, perhaps referring to how songwriting is evolving. Another surreal goonish comment from George. Suede face and leather head. Leatherhead is a town in Surrey in England. And suede face is a play on words from that, I suppose. <laughs> Michael asks, was the science fiction any good? A reference to Out of the Unknown. George and Ringo explain the plot. Was the science fiction any good? Nine January, mm. focused in on the M1, mm. 
on this car mm. and made him crash mm. so that he'd and then they somehow take his mind or whatever it is mm. and transplant it into this new uh, into the body new body, body. Mm. Rex Industries they were called <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he, he suddenly comes up and he's in this other body and they're saying I'm a hire and all that you, mm. we've brought you from 1969 mm -hmm. and uh, then there's this other fellow who's, who's running the place seemed, seemed to be and he, he, he wanted a, a younger body he got the reincarnation machine yeah, <laughs> it's so <laughs> but it didn't work on him did it no because the, the, and a the, reject the, the, old, the 1969 guy who he crashed into mm. he the other guy died as well and his mind got caught up in the power source that was picking up the the body, uh, the mind they wanted. Mm. And so he, so he took over. He mm. said, a bit of a fight, but I made it. Yeah, he tried into this other body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but he was like a reject. So I he saw the end, where the guy was The white fellow. You know yeah. the very white yeah. fellow? Mm. Well, he was the reject. He was the one that crashed originally. And he's the one who died again, isn't he? He came in the body. No, no. But remember they put him in a chair? No, yes. Well, that was the scene at the end. The good guy out. owed him, yeah. you know, because he crashed into him. Did you see where he went through that scene saying well, he enjoyed the thought of it? Because he got so his he car under control at one point, then he suddenly thought, wow, you know, it's a groove yeah. dying, so yeah. he let it go. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, he took the blame for himself. He said, you know, it was his fault that he'd killed the other guy. But when they went in the two chairs at the end... So then the, the, the thing was that this the white guy, guy, who was the regent, was white, only yeah. 19 when he'd got killed, yeah. so he wanted He it. took the other body, you know, the good... And all that bit of hunting. Yeah, well, they always have that because it's the the end product of fun. Is where you know you've nothing else to fun for each other. You know, all those science fiction ones, you know, human beings, the ultimate game, the fun. Tony Richmond can be heard in the background asking if anybody saw the ITV documentary on World War Two, which is called The Killing of Eagles. Which one? Oh yeah, I saw a bit of that later on. Oh, was that about the fight? The bears fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Look quite Yeah. There was something in that that I never knew. You know where they dropped yeah. all the bombs on Germany? They killed more people than they hated them. Yeah. 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 And all civilians. Yeah. Nothing to do with it. Did you see when they flew over? It looked like Hamburg. George is amazed and appalled by the statistic that the bombs dropped on Dresden in Germany by the Allies killed more people than the Hiroshima atomic bomb, or as Ringo puts it, Horishima. Images of bombed out Germany remind George of Hamburg in 1960. Tape cuts. The conversation shifts to the film Operation Crossbow, and then to the boots that George likes. Uh, and he invented that V2 because they were getting, you know, they, did you see that film, Crossbow, Crossbow, yeah. Well, we saw it flying, yeah, it was yeah. about that V2, yeah. well, he invented that, just like a bomb that was flying. They sell boots okay, that high, but not that tight, and not particularly leather, maybe softer. No, the only, I'm looking for... ones, like, you know those Afghan coats we yes. all had? Embroidered. Mm. I got boots like that, but the Michael slippers, got those, the slippers for the home. Yes. And it is, it is great. Well, I've got you boots just of those. Your pants. In. I've got. You want boots of those? Yeah. 
Paul has arrived. Michael makes reference to Michael Rainey, the boutique owner, who started the trend for psychedelic stores with his shop Hung On You in Chelsea in 1965. George appears to be referring to the embroidered boots that will feature prominently in the Apple Studios section of the Get Back documentary. Paul has a pair of these boots and George wants a pair. It sounds like Paul may have given them to George. Yeah. You know where you get them? Yeah, you get them off me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got the merchandising right, haven't I, boy? I'll give you them. I'd yeah. never wear them. Nick Cohen wrote in 1971, Hung On You was simultaneously the last fling of dandyism and the first intimation of hippie and strangeness. The boutique Hung On You was opened by Michael Rainey in 1965. Rainey himself had little fashion or tailoring experience, but the store flourished as part of a vanguard of hip London shops like Granny Takes a Trip, catering to the new breed of dedicated followers of fashion, the new all-male dandies sporting frilly shirts, jackets with velvet cuffs, kipper ties, lemon-hued sharkskin suits and reworked military uniforms. Rainey's shop became a groovy place to be seen for young pop stars and other celebrities attracted to the oversized shop sign and gaudy mural inside. The emphasis of the Hung On You environment was for retail as an ecstatic experience. Shop assistants handed out smiles on sticks when not lounging and smoking marijuana in public view. The Beatles soon became regular patrons of the store. As his wife Jane Ormsby Gore, daughter of Lord Harlick, commented, Michael would find lovely materials, all made in London, in the East End by proper old-fashioned tailors. The Stones and the Beatles would come in and say, we want four of these. The most extraordinary example of Rainey's status among the pop elite is his appearance in the form of a garishly coloured pop art portrait on the cover of the Beatles' 1966 compilation LP, a collection of Beatles oldies but goldies. The Beatles were also pictured in various hung-on-you suits, shirts and jackets during promotion for their 1966 tour. The boots that George is so enamoured with appeared to have been part of a range made by Gohill from materials that Ornsby Gore brought back from India. Hung-on-you had a wild, druggy reputation, but the clothes did not come cheap. Suits sold for 35 guineas, the equivalent of two weeks' wages. That was in their heyday. By 1969, Hung On You's popularity was in decline, as Jane Ormsby Gore relates. Michael made the most gigantic mistake going onto the King's Road. He felt that it was happening on the King's Road, but it cost a lot of money to move and people didn't know where we were. It became less successful then. Rainey sold his lease in 1969 and he and Jane, with their two children, gave everything away and moved to the Maltese island of Gozo to find enlightenment through fasting and meditation. Do you want to hear the song I wrote yes. last night? Yeah. Nice. George demos I Me Mind for Paul, who immediately comments on its meter. It's just a very short one.
George queries the grammar of his line, flowing more freely than wine, trying to maintain interest, which prompts Paul to make some off-colour rhymes for the word freer. What, uh, gram- uh, is that grammatical? Flowing more freely than wine? Yeah. Flowing much no, freer. Fantastic. More freely. Freer. It's Free. funny when if you're writing, yeah, thinking of how you say it. But I got fruit sticking out here. I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Freer, if, you, if there was such a word as freer, is it F R E E R? It's F R E E R. It's F R E E R. Like queer. Freer. Freer, queer. Tape cuts. Sound quality is much improved. When they are coming in, oh, yeah, and it starts that one, and, they, and then you open the doors, and we're, we're in the middle of a number. Paul and Michael are talking about and then when options for starting there, the live performance as opposed together, to just walking on stage. Suggested on ideas opening so a door and walking in on the Beatles mid song, or they wait on stage for the audience to arrive. Or you're just sitting waiting, and then when everybody's there, and it's all collected and you're all together. Then you start, as opposed to you coming on as the Beatles. It's like much more intimate and participated oh. that you're there. Like when they, you Gavin? know, well, like we're doing it anyway while they come in before we start. Yeah, like, like you, we you did on Dude, where we did a Who's bit for two conversations at once. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Like it's much, much more intimate as opposed uh, to the stage and yeah, them. You know what I mean? Enough. If we Can were you, to do oh, it here, the way to do it is to make the Big Brotherhood again. You'll have to cancel the session for tomorrow night. Is that the way you were leading? I just like the idea of cancelling. You know, if we could Tuesday do it, I was thinking it'd be great, really, to have that like, where all the audience... George Martin can be heard briefly in this discussion, mentioning Chris O'Dell, who appeared to be handling the booking of studio time at this point. We mentioned her when discussing Billy Preston earlier in the series. Chris had found work at Apple through her friendship with Derek Taylor. She developed close friendships with Paul, George and especially Ringo. We will probably discuss her in more detail later in the series, but if you'd like to know more, she has written an autobiography. Miss O'Dell, Hard Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, the Stones, Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton. Um, Yeah, well maybe Chris O'Dell will do it, but I spoke to Peter Brown, he originally... I got a feeling you're not going to have so Oh, yeah. Just tell him to get her to do it all. Oh, yeah. George is cancelling a session and rebooking it for Tuesday night, when, of course, he'll be free. Presumably, this is for Jackie Lomax. Cancel tomorrow, I'm getting it for Tuesday or Wednesday night. Well, we're just going to do them all with the audience. But the British audience... Oh, yes! Bloody goodness, mother. You know, you're trying to get them. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, the example... Well, you'd have to find the people who could do it. The other conversation, Ringo compares the staging idea to the Hey Jude promo. Paul is into getting more audience participation, but he's sceptical about how well British audiences would react. And then it means like just playing to groups. But see, the example <coughs> of the perfect stage show is James Brown. <coughs> Michael states that he thinks James what? Brown James is the Brown. greatest showman. He's the greatest stage show of all time, I think. I think the whole thing, I think it really is. I think it is Mr. Show. Come back, Ringo, come back. No, no, no. You can't do no more, man. Really? (laughs) (laughs) George is incredulous, and Paul and Ringo parody the singer's cloak shtick at the end of each show. Luckily, the Beatles didn't try this, as the monkeys had already worked something like this into their act. But what it has is he's got comedy and everything. He's got all that bit before he comes on. And then I love when he comes on with a little white suitcase thing out of sight on it. 
in a white silk suit. Michael is unswayed in his opinion. Paul is now talking about Jimmy Scott and his other catchphrases. That's what uh, the fellow said, oh bloody, oh bloody, oh bloody, says this other thing, he said, too much. He said, nothing too much, nothing too much, out of sight, nothing too much, clean out, clean out of sight, yeah, nothing too much. Who is the guy from Idea? Who's Jimmy we, Scott? Jimmy, oh bloody, oh bloody, oh Scott. <laughs> nothing too much, nothing too much, out of sight. It's good that, though, there's nothing too much. There's another version which was kind of in the, in the, in the charts. It's dropped out, which I like. The better it's not dropped out. Michael refers to another cover of Obladi Oblada that is in the charts. Paul and Ringo name the artist The Bedrocks, a West Indian band from Leeds, North Yorkshire. A much more authentic scar version than the Marmalades. A six-piece soul, scar and reggae group who were formed in the Chapel Town area of Leeds in 1966, the Bedrocks were initially named the Bedrock Sunshine Band. Oddly, they took their name from the fictional town of Bedrock as seen in the cartoon show The Flintstones. All six members, that's Trevor Wisdom, organ and vocals, Owen Wisdom, bass and vocals, William Hickson, lead guitar and vocals, Leroy Mills, trumpet, Paul Douglas, tenor saxophone and Reggie Challenger, drums, were West Indian migrants hailing from Jamaica, St. Kitts and Montserrat. In 1968, Reggie gave Melody Maker a brief history of the group. We've all played in other groups, but never had any success. They were one of many young black groups playing in Leeds at the time, but their unique style made them stand out from the competition. The name shortening to the Bedrocks came in December of 1967, shortly before they turned professional in April of 1968. Things moved rapidly for them. They got a manager, Stanley Share, and their first London bookings. Steadily, they built up a following playing Soul, Scar and Bluebeat, travelling the length and breadth of the country in an unused ambulance modified into a touring van. With the addition of Barbadian vocalist Lou Prinz, by October of 1968, the group had a nationwide following and made their TV debut on BBC Two's Colour Me Pop. At one of their London gigs, ex-Beatles sound engineer and now producer Norman Smith got to hear of them. Smith invited them to London, along with Lou Prince as vocalist, to record a version of a song he had seen them perform live, Obladi Oblada. Unfortunately, the ambulance had broken down and the band finances were in such a pitiful state they managed to borrow £25 to hire a van to get them to the recording session but arrived in London penniless, as Reggie stated to Melody Maker. We had no money at all. We didn't eat for the two days. We're in London. We used a club called the London Cavern to rehearse the Beatles number and they let us kip on the floor. Extraordinarily, the Bedrock's version of Obladi Obladar, backed with a song written by manager Sher called Lucy, was recorded, mixed, pressed and in shops within two days. The reason for the haste was the competition from other artists who'd also cut versions of the song. On the 30th of November, Melody Maker reported on this Beatles song race, mentioning the Bedrocks as one of the artists to have recorded a version of Obladi Obladar. Spectrum and Joyce Bond had also released versions. Marmalade's recording was the one strongly tipped by DJs and pop artists to win the race to the top of the charts. The NME was more favourable, however, reporting that the Bedrocks version came closer to the authentic Caribbean Calypso feel than the others. By the time the Bedrocks version charted, debuting at 34, the Marmalades had already been in the chart for two weeks and was sitting at number nine. 
By the first week in January, as Paul correctly asserts, the single was in the charts, residing at number 20 while the Marmalade version was at number one. Speaking in 2017, Reggie Challenger suspected foul play, claiming the Marmalade record was hyped into the charts. But in December 1968, he was more charitable, saying, We believe in live and let live. Chart success led to TV appearances in late 1968 and early 1969. According to Reggie, one appearance for African TV in London was attended by all four Beatles because they said it sounded more authentic and more what they'd like it to be. Number 20 was the chart peak for the Bedrock single and by February it had left the charts completely. But overseas they fared better, reaching number one in Japan and number two in South Africa and Australia and hit the top ten in Sweden. 1968 Reggie was hopeful. We're hoping it's the start for us and we can go on from here and make a lot of records. Sadly it was not to be. An up-tempo and catchy follow-up, The Love Dean Girls, was well reviewed by the music papers and had all the hallmarks of a successful follow-up. However, lack of airplay meant that it failed to chart. By April the band had dropped Lou Prince as vocalist, preferring to cover the role between Trevor and Owen Wisdom. In July, the band were forced to cancel a headlining slot at the Soulmania concert at Torquay Town Hall due to illness, and that same month the newspaper declared the band were now accepting cabaret engagements. By October, their third single, a cover of Sam Cooke's What a Wonderful World, was released, but again failed to make the chance. At a New Year's Eve gig at the Scene Around Discotheque in Glossop, Derbyshire, tragedy struck. Guitarist William Hickson was helping load equipment into the van when a drunk driver crashed into the back of their vehicle. Hickson's injuries were so severe that his right leg needed to be amputated immediately and his left was eventually also removed. The band continued to have a run of bad luck. Their van crashed on the 22nd of February 1970 in Aldershot, hospitalising their driver Ian Masson and a mechanical failure led to the cancellation of another gig. A fourth single was released, Hit Me On The Head, another up-tempo scar number, again failing to touch the charts. The Bedrock's fifth and final single in July 1970, ironically called Stone Cold Dead In The Market, once again failed to chart and the band never recorded again. By the time William Hickson had recovered enough to be able to perform again, the Bedrock's had broken up. Another tale of bad fortune and unrealised potential from the annals of rock music. Well, as a good into Fry's chocolate bar, yeah. Right oh, yeah. No, because in, in the Express yesterday, it said that the Marmalade were number one. The Rancher's Fruit Gum Shooting Star Awards. Were number one, and uh, the Bedrocks went in it, in the Express, which I like their version. Paul is making some kind of reference to awards sponsored by confectionery brands like Fry's Chocolate Bars. I'm not sure what this refers to, so this one I'm going to throw out to the WAD fans. Let me know. We're now treated to a quick rundown of some obsolete 60s slang terms. Okay, that's good. All right. That's cool, that's cool, that's cool. Very groovy, man. It's groovy and cool. Groovy, Mike. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> what other words are good? Like groovy. Neat. 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 I used to like snazzy. It was oh, an American snazzy. word. Snazzy. <laughs> snazzy. <laughs> Twelve years ago. Gee Willikers. Gee Willikers, snazzy. Snazzy, I just think of those big colored ties. Somehow. Well, I remember once there was a girl I liked in California. I took her out for the first time. We didn't know each other well. And I really dressed up like from a New York, like a New York boy. And then she greeted me and said, boy, you look snazzy. I 
Yeah, no, no, she's she's not better change. That joke from Ringo was, "I better change." It's funny how affecting words can be. Conversation is a bit stupid. I love that lilac on that wall. George improvising a bluesy tune. This is the day before he writes for you, Blue. Get your rocks off. Not the same song as on Dylan's basement tapes, but clearly inspired by it. I'd hazard a guess that out of tune piano is Ringo. Paul talking to Michael again about augmenting the band for the show. Someone on tambourine or maracas. Mal on anvil. Ringo interjects. Hand things out as well to play with. Thinking of audience participation. Maybe harkening back to the Hey Jude promotional clip. Michael picks up on the idea. I think if we do it here, yes. and that's an ex extremely long pause after that, if we do it here, we ought to, I think, which is what we're talking about, is take a lesson from Jude, which is another title for a song, take a lesson from Jude, and make it that kind of thing where the audience is involved, but in a good way. So it's like an, I don't, when I say a party, I don't mean like paper hats and balloons. But maybe we should have. Maybe we should have. Interestingly, as they're talking about Hey Jude, Georgie's playing the na-na-na section on guitar. Tony Richmond joins in with the conversation, talking about the logistics of set building, but Michael doesn't want to think about using Twickenham for the show. Also, but if you're doing here, for them to start filming the set last week. Well, see, we're not really going to have a set. Well, then I mean, they must be doing something like the show. So if you have to use any of this for the show, it's an easy link. What do Well, I mean, you won't just be doing it here. Well, what I thought is, if, I thought is if we did do it here, which I don't want to talk about, which I would not want to talk about, because we ought to have a whole stage. Oh. Kevin returns to inform George that EMI is booked all next week. Paul suggests Trident, but then adds, it's not the best. Then he mentions Morgan Studios, which he's heard good things about. Michael thinks Glyn will know more about Morgan. In fact, in March... Paul will use Morgan Studios to produce Mary Hopkins' single Goodbye and later record some of his first solo album there. It's, I've never, you know, it's Morgan, I think. is good enough for you know, yeah. um, But you see, the reason, I, well, that's all right. Maybe I could go in for Friday. Dennis O'Dell arrives, and we have two conversations at once again. I couldn't get Good morning, Dennis. Did you buy, Hello, did you buy a horse yesterday? Pardon? Tell him just to keep oh, Friday. Were you just selling Forget story. what I just Order said for a moment until I'll find George Martin if I can get the musicians. Came up last thing, last half hour. I've been there all day. 
legalised pot. Too much money. I see that's the nomination. A nomination to. I thought that's going to kill its popularity. Mayor, uh, racehorse, you know. Yeah, it's a big stallion. Legalised. Racehorse. Prices those things. It was idiots. Michael asks, did you buy a racehorse yesterday? Dennis says there were two he was interested in, but they were too much money. Ringo comments that he had a racehorse, but never saw it. George tells Kevin to ask to keep Trident as an open booking for Friday, but then he changes his mind and says to wait until he's checked with George Martin about booking the musician. George then comments on a newspaper article, Legalised Part. Michael jokes that legalising it would make it less popular. George Reading says it could be less harmful than alcohol. The penalty is up to £2,000 and 10 years in prison. George reflects on its effects on people compared to alcohol. George's views are his own and don't necessarily reflect the opinion of this podcast. John has arrived. George has been playing John's Epiphone and jokes that he's been keeping it warm for him. Yeah. Camera A, sink slate, 137. Exactly, and it's the irony. I'm uh, just warming your guitar. I've been dreaming about it. John sarcastically says that he's been dreaming of getting back to his guitar. A little bit of an insight into his view of these rehearsals, perhaps. Ringo does a fair imitation here of Rona Martin's laughing stalwart, Henry Gibson. My guitar by Henry Gibson. <laughs> My guitar plays so sweet. There was something I saw on TV last night who I immediately thought, ah, just looks like our set, that coloured spotlight. It was maybe it was the jazz band playing on Lady I Love. <laughs> Gee, that's good. Yeah. I mean, so just the way the orange is doing. Tony's very skillful. It will look great. I assure you. George has watched a lot of TV last night. He comments on how their backdrop looks a lot like the lighting behind the jazz band and late night lineup. Michael seems offended by this and defends Tony's work, saying he assures them it will look good. George practicing scales on guitar, something you're unlikely to hear Paul or John doing. Paul is talking to Dennis about keeping horses in the background and how many stable boys you need, etc. Paul bought his father a racehorse in 1964 for his 62nd birthday. On the 7th of July 1964, at precisely the stroke of midnight, Paul McCartney presented his father Jim with a big flat brown paper parcel. Jim had been attending the premiere of A Hard Day's Night and was now a guest at the after party. As the 6th of July slipped into the 7th, Jim turned 62 years old and the parcel was Paul's gift to him. Upon opening the package, Jim looked a little bewildered. Inside was a framed portrait of a horse, brown with black legs and three white socks. He wondered for a second, 
why would my son think I wanted a picture of a racehorse for my birthday? But all the same, he thanked Paul and said, It's a very nice picture. Paul laughed. It's not just a picture, Dad. I've bought you the bloody horse. His name is Drake Strum, and he's riding at Aintree next Saturday. It was a very generous gift. Drake's drum cost Paul £1,200, the equivalent of £22,772 today. Drake's drum had a successful career in racing, his high point being the winning of the Hilton Plate, the race that preceded the Grand National. Both Jim and Paul were there, but at that moment in 1964, all Jim could utter was an incredulous, You silly bugger. In 1964, Drake's drum would have been three or four years old, by 1969, he was eight or nine, still young enough to ride, but too old to race. Paul would eventually take Drake's drum to his happy retirement on his High Park farm in Scotland. It's possible that the discussions Paul is having with Dennis this morning are something to do with looking after a retired horse who just had a birthday. Racehorses all being registered as being born on January 1st, as is the custom in the sport. between Paul and Dennis varies from talking about office space to acreage and farmland. It's very difficult to pick up though because they're they're muttering and they're being obscured by George. Michael doesn't understand the reference to two peas in a pod. Do you want this, says George, and hands the guitar back to John. His smoker's cough is still bad. Paul, or more likely George, then plays a few chords on the piano which turns into something that sounds a little like John's imagined. 
up his bandmates to start work. We just drive out. Morning, Dennis. How are you, Giorgio? George greets Dennis. Dennis greets him as Giorgio, which could have stuck in Paul's mind as the name of his protagonist in Get Back. Not so bad. Very uptight this morning. I have been fighting with everybody, arguing with the world, quarrelling with all. Good, good. So I'll have to go away and have a cup of coffee. Good. good. Start again and do an hour's meditation and then come Dennis relates about the fraught morning he's had already and how he needs to have a coffee and some meditation to get through the rest of the day. Paul suggests press-ups, but Dennis points out his distended stomach and says he can't do press-ups. Ringo joins Paul, or more likely George, on drums. must be George on piano because Paul can't simultaneously play the bass and piano at the same time. Dennis says his farewells and so will we. That's where we'll leave it for now. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now.